And we're starting right now. Go ahead and read Psalm 119, verse 33. Here we go. Hey, grace, man with arms raised, look, reveal, breath. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law, and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve me, preserve my life in your righteousness. Good deal. Okay, so here we are, uh, uh, Thursday night Bible class. We're in Romans 8, verse 30. And before we get into that, uh, does anybody have an update on Paul? I emailed him and did not hear back from him. You have an update. <clears throat> he has cancer of the bladder. Okay. It's invaded his rectum. Okay. Um, he has a side ease, and they aspirated him yesterday. Okay. Some of the fluid. He's seen an oncologist. What they going to do, I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, we certainly have to keep him in prayer and... Uh, We'll do that, and um, uh, anyway, we'll just go to the Lord in prayer and a general prayer, and just remembering Paul because we know his troubles. Lord, uh, here we are in your presence, and we thank you for the people that are here today. We've got some visitors, and we've got uh, some uh, people that are uh, returning again for the second or third time, and it's good to know that uh, they're here and that they're uh, into your word and willing to uh, share in your word, and we certainly pray for the people right here, right now, that have uh, cancer, that are struggling with their own uh, difficulties, and we also pray for Paul, who is at home, and uh, we have heard the report, and uh, it's just one more difficult thing after another with him, so we would pray that you would be with him and Elaine, and just help them through this, and certainly all the others that are out there that have uh, sent in emails and prayer requests, uh, marriages that are having troubles, and uh, sicknesses, and and just all kinds of debilitating things that are happening, and you know every one of them, so rather than going through a long list, we'll just leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that you are in control of them, and we thank you that we can come to your th throne of grace, and we can ask you for your blessing upon these people, and uh, we do that, and we do it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, I uh, said two weeks ago, before I left to go to California, that I would go through a little bit about baptism, because we did baptism not too long ago, and um, I had some things in the daily devotional that I read, which is Reformed Theology, and um, I want to compare it to what I taught, and I'm not going to say that it's correct or incorrect. We'll just see uh, if you have any thoughts, and I'll ask a couple questions, but um, we'll go through baptism for a few minutes because it's totally relevant to the book of Romans. It's something Paul addressed. It's, they even cite Romans in here, but uh, anyway... Um, uh, I'll start out, and I'm going to start skipping through it, and it won't make much sense but um, because I'm going to be going through three or four pages, but just to get an idea of what they teach in Reformed theology. Um, we'll say uh, the subject was baptism at a uh, meeting. Aaron had been baptized in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as an infant in a church that was known to be theologically liberal, and he did not come to faith in Christ until he was much older. His question was, do I need to be baptized again? <laughs> skipping down, they told him no, Okay. Ephesians 4, 5 tells us that there is only one baptism. Okay, does anybody know what it is speaking of in Ephesians 4 and 5? <coughs> one baptism. 
Holy Spirit baptism has nothing to do with water baptism, okay? Now, I said I wasn't going to give my opinion, but I did. And I probably will continue to do that. Ephesians 4 and 5 has nothing to do with water baptism. He is right. That is absolutely correct. Now, let me read some more. More significant baptism is primarily about God and what he does. Baptism's efficacy is tied to neither individual involved in the sacrament, recipient, or minister, but to the sovereignty and trustworthiness of the Lord in whose name baptism is administered. The validity of baptism does not depend on the individual faith of one in administering the sacrament, for that would make the efficacy of God's promises dependent on a mere creature, as if God were dependent on the faith of the minister to give a new heart to one of his elect. What does it say in Matthew 28 about baptism? Anybody cite that? The very last thing that he says in the book of Matthew about baptism. Go into all the world. Make disciples. He's giving you an order. Go ahead. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so he says, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, awaiting regeneration so that you can believe, so that you, it, 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 they got it backwards. He's very clear about the order. And um, uh, so anyway, that's what it says there. And then, hello, sweet pea, how are you? This is the first time we ever had a kid in the uh, Bible class. Actually, it's not true because Ray Willett brought his kids once. Well, but, um, no, you weren't here last week. Oh, we had, oh, well, that's right. Okay, all right. I didn't know that. Um, okay, so the validity of baptism does not depend on its being received after a profession of faith, for baptism conveys, conveys God's promise to give faith to his elect. He says that baptism is um, uh, it, it, when you baptize somebody, it conveys God's promise to give faith to his elect. Is that anywhere recorded in Scripture? No. No, it's not even hinted at. It is nowhere recorded in Scripture. Baptism is what? What is? Why do we baptize in water? It's a, it's a symbol of the death. That's right. It is a symbol. It is a symbol of what you have gone through. Because as he said, baptism that is referred to in Ephesians is the Holy Spirit baptism. We are united with Christ. We are spiritually dead with him to the law, and we are raised with him to newness of life. We are no longer under the law. That is what the Holy Spirit does, and we acknowledge that publicly to the world by going out and being immersed in the water and saying, I am following Christ in believer's baptism. I am buried with Christ in his death, raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you sprinkle somebody, you lose all of the symbolism. It has nothing to do with this. So we're going to go on. We'll read a little bit more of this. I got four or five pages, but I want people to understand this, that what is incorrect about this doctrine, because we went through it. It's very clear. If you're confused, you can either go back and watch the Roman study or uh, email me and I'll give you the sermon I did from the book of Genesis, which explains the order in which these things take place based on the life of Abraham. Okay. Um, but we'll go on. Oh, let's see here. Um, do I want to read any of this? I said next page. Oh, no. I see. Skip something here. Um, uh, he says a theological connection between Christian baptism and our regeneration. They are connecting the two. Um, baptism tangibly portrays. And now, remember, they're speaking of infant baptism. This is what Reformed, Reformed churches do. They're not speaking of uh, anything other than that. So they're saying that when you infant baptize somebody, a theological connection between Christian baptism and our regeneration. This is a seal saying that we're going to be regenerated someday. It makes no sense. But anyway, we'll go on. Why does it make no sense? If I were to baptize 
everybody that came into the church and said, you're being baptized in the name of the Spirit. Why does infant baptism make no sense based on um, our regeneration? Because not all of them are going to be saved. Not all of them are going to be saved. Choose to be saved. They, that's, that's right. It is completely up to the free will of man. So very good. In addition to being a sign and a seal of regeneration, infant baptism, baptism is also a sign and a seal of the forgiveness of sins. Okay, according to Westminster Confession of Faith 28.1, does anybody see a problem there? Not according to Scripture. It's not according to Scripture. Once, and I've said this time after time up here, if you have a confession of faith, if you have a catechism, I'm so glad she said that, if you have anything else, that can be amended. That can be amended. You can't amend the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. That's where we get our doctrine from. The Westminster Confession of Faith, to cite that instead of Scripture, is citing something that was developed by man. It may be in accord with Scripture. It may not be. you see the problem there? So, this is taught in passages such as Acts 2.38, where Peter commands the Pentecost crowd to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What is the matter with that? For the Jews. Acts 2.38 was addressed by Peter to the Jewish people. It has nothing to do, nothing to do with us. Zero. The Gentiles were not even known to be included in the provisions of Christ until Acts chapter 10. And even then, Peter didn't understand what was going on. And in Acts chapter 11, after he understood what was going on, he had to re-explain it to all of the Jews because they were dumbfounded that Peter went into Gentiles and lived in their house, spoke in their house. Yes. Knowing that baptism is a declaration of faith. Right. Okay. Can a person baptize themselves? You know, if there was no other person around to do it, I don't see any problem with that. But if you came to faith, you came to faith because somebody told you about Jesus. So probably they're going to be there and say, why don't we baptize you right now? If you're by but, yourself, it wouldn't be a public. Yeah, it wouldn't be a public demonstration as well. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, it, you know, if somebody told you about Jesus and you went back home in the mountains and there was nobody around and you said, Lord, I just want to follow you. There's nothing to say you can't. You know, but it, normally you would think somebody would be there and say, well, let's baptize you now. You know, so that's but that's right. It's a public expression. And if you're doing it by yourself, there's really no public expression. But there's nothing that forbids that. Um, good question, though. Um, so anyway, what else is the matter with citing Acts 238? Not only is it addressed to the Jews, but it is. Is what? Under the law. Well, it, no, they're coming out of the law. OK. And so uh, he says you have to repent. Well, they're repenting because they crucified the Lord. That's what they're repenting of. There's nothing anywhere that says that we need to repent in order to be saved. We are saved, and then we change. You don't go to a doctor after getting yourself healed. You go to the doctor. He gives you the cure. You go home and get healed, right? That's the normal order. Jesus is our physician. We go to him and say, I need to be saved. I need you to cleanse me and purify me. He does that, and then we get a new heart, and we are changed. Acts 2.38, one more question, because nobody's answered it yet. What is the problem with using Acts chapter 2? Told you. She's got it. It is descriptive. It simply describes what happened when Peter told the Jews to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It describes. It doesn't prescribe anything to anybody in the church age. Zero. There are very few prescriptive verses in the book of Acts. Very few. When Jesus commands at the beginning of the book of Acts something, that's prescriptive. He's prescribing something for them to do. 
it is not descript. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's not descriptive. But the book of Acts itself, for the most part, simply describes what happened. There is not a set order of baptism because you've got Peter in chapter 2 uh, to the Jews, and then you've got Peter and John after the people have believed the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then you've got Peter being told to go and give the message to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. None of those things happen today. They are all just describing what happened because Peter was present to ensure that the Jews understood what was going on in redemption. Come to Acts chapter 13, <laughs> Peter's not mentioned anymore. It is all, all Paul, all the way through the church age. After the church age, we're going to be back with the Jews again. But right now we are under the Gentile church age. We solely, solely get our doctrine from the Pauline epistles, from Romans to the book of Philemon. That is it. Everything else is useful and profitable for the God of man, for rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, but it does not apply as prescriptive to our walk. We can cite Peter, we can cite the book of Hebrews, we can cite um, Genesis or Job, but our marching orders for our doctrine is found in the letters of Paul. If you get that wrong, if you're not a dispensationalist to start with and you're mixing dispensations up and that's why there's all this bad theology in the church. So we'll go on. Um, uh, down at the bottom, they say, uh, but note that the reality of forgiveness to which baptism points, infant baptism, uh, comes to pass only as baptized individuals repent. So you're saying you have to repent. That Once again, they're putting the cart before the horse. They're saying this child was baptized, but it's only so good as they repent. So there's no true salvation because they're working in order to be saved. All right, so they've got that backwards. Peter joins the necessity of repentance with baptism in today's passage. Once again, he's speaking to the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the Gentile church age. Okay, I'll go down to the end. But if we are living lives of faith and repentance, the water baptism assures us that God has cleansed us and forgiven us. So it's conditional on us what we do as to whether we are saved or not. Even though they say that God regenerated us, and gives us a heart to repent, it can't be, because it's conditional on what we're doing. We'll go on here. Next page, West, Westminster Confession of Faith 28.6, he once again doesn't cite scripture, tells us, who cares what it says? Go to the Bible. All right, we know this to be the case since only the elect of God receive his saving, regenerating grace. And they cite Romans 9, uh, 1 through 29, speaking about the Jewish issue of all Israel will be saved. We'll be in Romans 9 very soon. Anyway, so he's, that's out of context, okay? They're, they're, he's speaking about the wrong issue, okay? Grace is conferred, but only to the elect who invariably respond to that grace with repentance and faith. Well, why baptize somebody then? Right. Why, why would you do that? Um, uh, through Though the time of response does not necessarily coincide with the time of baptism. Like I said, why do it then? It makes no sense what they're saying because it doesn't even imply that you're going to be saved because some people never come to faith. So why even bother baptizing? They have the entire issue of baptism completely backwards. You believe in Jesus Christ. You say, I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And God regenerates you and he baptizes you into the Holy Spirit. That is the order which Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, church age, gives us. And then from there, we go and we make a public profession of that. I want the world to know that I've received Jesus, and I'm going to be baptized scripturally, according to scripture. Go to a couple more. 
Um, I, I put a comment here, so obviously it's important. Paul can say our baptism buries us with Christ. Admittedly, we cannot describe how this exactly happens. We cannot be united to Christ apart from personally trusting in Jesus, and he cites John three sixteen and Romans 4, so baptism in itself cannot unite us to Christ. Yet we cannot have faith without the gift of God's saving grace, which is somehow conferred to the elect in baptism, since baptism is a sign of that salvation. My comment, convoluted. Nothing yeah. he said there makes any sense at all. It makes it, it, You could read it backwards, forwards, it still won't make any sense. Everything he said makes no sense, okay? Once again, he is equating water baptism of a child with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the two can't be equated, because the baptism of the Holy Spirit only comes after you believe in Christ. You see the problem there? One more. Down at the bottom, he says, baptism is God's promise to believers. <laughs> He's speaking of children being baptized. No, that's stupid. I hate to say it, but that's my comment down there. That's insane. To say this is his promise to believers, and the person never comes to faith? then why did you do it? And that's the problem, especially with the Roman Catholic Church, because they believe that that is a sacrament which saves them. That's and right. people will say, "You, many of you have come out of the Catholic Church, and you see, well, I'm okay. I was baptized into the church. Who cares? Absolutely, who cares? A, a couple more. Weeks ago, too. Yeah, yeah, I took a shower two weeks ago. That's right. Well, but, but the thing is, too, this, you better hurry up and baptize that baby. Because that's right, like, oh, because yeah, if yeah. not, it doesn't yeah. have the right. Christ's grace. Right. It's all very bad. Okay, circumcision pointed to the need for, re he's quoting circumcision from the Old Testament, and he's equating that with baptism. Circumcision pointed to the need for regeneration under the Old Covenant. No, circumcision was a sign that they were in the covenant people. Abraham believed in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. Okay, it was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. That's what it was. Does anybody here remember what that sign pictures? It's very explicit what that sign pictures. That's right. Cutting the sin nature in man. I've made a covenant with Abraham. Through this person, the sin nature will be cut. And so they cut their mail for the next 2,000 plus years, right? They're cutting the mail as a sign that sin would be cut in the man. Obviously, it didn't do it because they sinned all the way through. The entire Old Testament shows us that Israel failed. It was a picture of the coming Christ who would be born of a woman, but not of a man. Sin travels from father to child. It does not travel from mother to child. It is through the male issue that sin is received. All human beings have what? They have a mother. That's right, a father and a mother. All human beings except one. <coughs> Jesus was born of a woman without inheriting man's sin. This picture is fulfilled. Cut. The picture of cutting the male organ is fulfilled in Christ. That is what it is. It has nothing to do with what he is saying here. Absolutely nothing. Um, okay, so let me get you another one. Uh, where was I? Okay, we need for a generation. And then he goes down. Circumcision also wounds the flesh, revealing the consequences of those who broke the covenant. It has nothing to do with it. Those who were not circumcised in the flesh would be cut off from the visible covenant people. Okay, is that true? Did the people that wandered in the wilderness get sat, uh, circumcised when they were in the wilderness? No. No. They went to uh, uh, Gibroth. I, I forgot the name of it. It's called the Hill of Foreskins. Joshua circumcised so many people that they had a Hill of Foreskins. They weren't cut off from the covenant people, right? Other times in the Old Testament, somebody wasn't circumcised and they were not cut off. Even though he said, if you're not circumcised on the eighth day, you will be cut off. There were times where it didn't happen and they were not cut off. So it has nothing to do with that. 
a couple more. We're almost done with this, but I want people to understand the importance of this issue. Okay. Um, he said, um, baptism is the new covenant sacrament that replaces circumcision. Absolutely not. Spiritual. He is taking the spiritual and he's applying it to something physical. He has mixed apples and oranges. It is a mistake. It is a category mistake, and this is the problem. One more, and then I think, oh, no, two more. Okay, um, therefore, the New Testament accounts of those who were baptized after believing in Jesus, such as today's passage, which he's speaking of um, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' household, he said, should not be given prescriptive weight. Well, if there's anything prescriptive in all three of the baptisms, it would be Acts 10 because it is the Gentiles during the Gentile church age. But even that, we'll call it descriptive because Paul defines what baptism is. But they're wrong about that. They do not mandate that we wait to baptize individuals until after they po uh, profess faith. In other words, he's saying it's okay to baptize infants. Incorrect. They're saying that Acts 10 has nothing to do with it. It's showing a logical progression of what's happening. The Jews that rejected Jesus, the Samaritans who were part Jew, part Gentile, and then the Gentiles. If any is closest to it, it is that, but Paul defines it. It has nothing to do with infant baptism. And then finally, this page, um, he says that, um, uh, first, there is no necessary time relationship between regeneration, meaning they have this thing about regeneration. You don't have to believe in Christ. God regenerates you, and then you believe in Christ. So they're saying um, there's no necessary time relationship between regeneration and its visible sign and seal. In other words, you get signed and sealed through the baptism, and then someday God's going to regenerate you, which doesn't always happen, by the way. And um, uh, Abraham was regenerated before the sign, and Isaac was regenerated after the sign. Does it say anywhere in Scripture that Isaac was regenerated after being circumcised? Absolutely not. He was brought into the covenant people through circumcision. It never addresses the faith of Isaac in that way, ever. Totally convoluted. And then right down at the bottom, it says here, um, God's new covenant promises are as much for our children as the old covenant promises were for the children of the old covenant believers. And he cites Acts 2.39 again. Once again, Acts 2.39 is addressed to who? Yes. To the Jews who had crucified the Lord. It has nothing to do with you and me. Nothing. There's no repentance involved in it. It is completely and absolutely and wholly a category mistake. And finally, at the very bottom, he says, um, the New Testament never tells us to stop applying the sacrament of regeneration to the children of believers. My comment is what? Yeah, sacrament of regeneration. In other words, you baptize the children so that they will be regenerated someday. But he's already admitted it doesn't happen in everybody. And we know that. So it's obviously pointless, and it is a complete misuse of Scripture. Enough of that. I just wanted to share with you what I go through painfully every single morning of my life. Sometimes they have, yeah, but they do have some good comments, and I've said this before. They do have some good theology, and it's always good to know. Just as uh, I, I said to Beth one time, she asked me the same question, and she's very good about bringing these things in and getting you to think it through. And I went home, and I had to think it through, and then I said, well, why do we know what Democrats do? It's because we need to know what the enemy does when they are plotting what they're... If you don't know what they're doing, you have no basis for making your decisions about voting, right? So you have to have a full, broad spectrum of what is going on. I, you know, I want to know what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. I don't want to dwell on it, but I want to know their theology so I can tell them when they are wrong. I want to know about the Mormons because people inevitably will email and they'll say, what about Mormonism? Catholicism, what do they believe and why do they believe it? Okay, where are they incorrect? 
They believe that the church uh, picks scripture. In other words, they determine what scripture says, and they can add to scripture. We don't believe that. God has spoken. On and on. We could go with the the sacraments or the uh, Lord's Supper, the different ones. And I do it from time to time. Do we believe the Catholic transubstantiation? Do we believe Calvinism that says it's, you know, spiritual, got Christ is spiritually with us when we take it? Do we take Luther's view or do we take the Swingali view? Which one do we take and why? These are things that we want to know. If we don't know what's wrong, then we can't really be sure about what's right. So I love to read that. I get a lot of good information out of it. And at the same time, I also once in a while will find something that I can now explain why they're wrong, like we did today. So there you go. We're in Romans 8.30. I know that was a little long. That's okay. Romans 8.30. I'm going to back up the 28th beginning of the Yeah, please paragraph. do. Beginning of a paragraph. Uh, it's titled in my book, More Than Conquerors, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his son. Conformed. Conformed to the likeness of his son. Thank you. That he might be firstborn among many brothers. That's where we closed last week. It took an hour and a half to get through that one verse, right? <laughs> it was, and doctor, before you leave, I've got it for you. I printed it off. So there you go. He wanted that printed off. But um, now we're into Romans 830. And. Those predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, for he justified. Those he justified he also glorified. Okay, here's a question for you. Are we in heaven right now? No. Obviously Paul is speaking that the job is done. Even though we're not in heaven, the job is done. If you have called on Jesus Christ, you are, as it says in Colossians, um, uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, we're sitting in the heavenlies right now with God. Okay, with Christ in God, we are sitting there. We are redeemed. If nothing else tells you the doctrine of eternal salvation, verses like this in uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 should just shout it out to you. We are saved, and in God's mind, it is done. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, those he sanctified, and those or whatever. I, I might have gotten it out of order, but anyway, and those he glorified. Okay. It's Ephesians 1. Ephes what? Ephesians. No, no, no. Ephesians 2. I'm going to take you there because he's, he's challenging me. He's challenging me again. Okay, Ephesians 2. Hang on. Oops, I went too far. Ephesians 4. Okay, that's not what I want, though. It says here, um, 2, 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what I was quoting. So, I'm not sure what you were quoting, but I'm just going to let it go. Us. What? Chapter 1, he predestined Yes, us. but I wasn't talking about that. Yeah, he said, and we're sitting in his presence, you know, we have redemption. Oh, anyway. There you go. I was talking about the heavenly places, but that's okay. You are right. The predestination. Anyway, so now he has said in Romans 8, um, um, no, 29, he had talked about election and predestination. Like I said, we went through that in detail. How do we know which is correct and why? And then we get to Romans 8.30, and he repeats, where am I here, Romans 8.30? He repeats, moreover, whom he predestined. We were predestined according to a set process. I told you which one I believe. I gave all of the options, the four major options. How did God elect us? Was it at this point in, in his mind? Was it this point in mind? In other, and I've said this. I want to make sure everybody understands this. God does not think sequentially. Okay, he doesn't think one thought to another. Everything God knows immediately and intuitively. Everything that we went through last week, everything that we're looking at today is 
for our benefit. It is in the sequence of time, okay? So when it says that he did this and then he did this and then he did this, it all happens at once in his mind. We believed and we are glorified. It is done. Everything in the middle is all done in his mind, all right? And it was done before he created the world because he knows the choices we are going to make, but it does not mean that we don't make those choices. He has given us free will. If he's given us free will to fall, he's given us free will to choose the good, okay? So Romans 8.30, moreover, adds to the great news of the previous verse. And it was good news, wasn't it? Everybody went through it, and we know that God has elected us, he has saved us, he has redeemed us. Yes, before creation, God foreknew those who would receive his gift of grace found in Christ. He knew it. Those whom he knew would receive this offer, he predestined, according to what he says right here, to be conformed to the image of his son. What that means is that we are going to be like Christ. All right. Is anybody here like Christ right now? We might be working, but not very much. Absolutely. We're, we're working towards it. We're trying to live in holiness. We fall back. We fall into trouble. We fall into sin. We walk away from him for 20 years, whatever. All right. We are not like Christ now. We are working towards that in our life. And some of us never get very far. Right. But there is a point where we will be like Christ. And in God's mind, it is done. Okay. So we are being conformed to the image of the son. But as Paul notes, there is more. He says, moreover, those whom he predestined last week for this honor, these he also called. This is the calling of the Spirit. However, this isn't just an offer, but rather it is an offer received. It is something received. We know this is the case because Paul next says that those whom he called, these he also justified. The actions thus far and the next to be mentioned are connected in God's intuitive mind. Everything happens immediately in his mind. Actually, that's even a category mistake because nothing is happening in his mind. He knows everything. There's no thought process going on in God. If there is, there is what associated with it? Change. Change. There is change in God. There is time moving along. God does not think that way. He knows everything. He created all of this for our benefit. When we look at the world around us, it is for our benefit that God uses the descriptions in the Bible. He says, the sun also rises. The sun doesn't rise. From outside of the earth, the earth is spinning, and the sun is over here not moving. And every 24 hours, the sun comes back to the place that it was before. A little bit different because the seasons are changing as well. But it looks like the sun is rising to us. The Bible is written for our perspective from man's perspective, not from God's. God is telling us what he is doing. All of these things are for us to understand what he has done, okay? So there's no error in the Bible when it says the sun rises. It is correct from our perspective, okay? So um, uh, we, uh, we know that, okay, the actions thus far and the next to be mentioned are connected to God's intuitive mind in a way which will be displayed in the sequence of time which he created. Time, space, matter all happen at one time. They came into existence by the spoken word of God, and everything that is happening since then is happening in that stream of time. He is outside of time. He's not limited to time. He is outside of it. And when Christ came, he entered into the stream of time. He set aside his divine nature and came into this. This is for us that we're in right now. As Albert Barnes observes, the connection is so certain, speaking of predestined to being justified, being called and then justified. The connection is so certain that the one infallibly secures the other. 
one leads to the other without any possibility of it not leading. If we believe Christ has predestined us because he knows that we are going to believe, we believe it is done. Everything leads completely to the next until its final completion. There is nothing that will ever keep this from happening. Okay? Because God doesn't think in a sequence, he is outside of time. These things are as certain as if they occurred in one moment, because in his mind, they just are. This includes his last thought of the verse, and those, those whom he justified, he glorified. We, it, it's done. I don't feel very glorified most of the time. Hedeco can assure you of that, that my husband is not glorified, okay? But in his mind, it is done. If you want to talk about eternal salvation, all you need to do is pick up the Bible and read it. Okay, people argue against once saved, always saved. That's a heresy because I know people that have called on Christ and now they've walked away from Christ. That does not negate God's faithfulness. Our faithlessness is highlighting God's faithfulness. And that's what we see where. Where is the example that we see this in the Bible? It's a group of people called, called, come on, group of people that highlights God's faithfulness. It begins with an I and ends with Israel. Okay, Israel, right? They were given the covenant. If you do these things, I'm going to do this and this and this to you. And if you don't do these things, or if you break, violate these things, I'm going to do this and this and this to you. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. He says what he's going to do to the people. All right. But he also says that I will never forsake you as a people. I have made a covenant with you. And no matter how bad you get, I will keep you as a people. So what does he do? He exiles them for 70 years. The greatest punishment of all. After doing all of the other things, did he destroy Israel when they were exiled? No, he brought them back as he said he would. He even told beforehand Jeremiah that he was going to bring them back. And then Daniel reading Jeremiah said, Lord, it's been 70 years. It's time to return us. And he went down onto his knees and he prayed. And guess what? They were returned. And then they didn't listen the second time. They nailed the Lord to the cross. They didn't do what Peter asked them to do in Acts chapter two, except a small remnant of them. And so what did he do? He exiled them again, and he sent them around the world. And they've gone through 2,000 years of grief, prophesied in advance, by the way. Ezekiel chapter 4, that's okay. Ezekiel chapter 4 said that how long it would be. All right, they, we knew to the day when they would be returned as a people, and they were returned, May 14th, 1948. They are unfaithful. He is faithful. When somebody calls on Jesus Christ, they are saved. It is done. Their faithlessness does not change his faithfulness. If you don't believe me, go to Timothy, let's go there, Timothy chapter 1. We'll read it really quickly, all right? I'll just take you there very quickly, and we'll read what he says about these two guys that were one absolutely Timothy, faithless. Timothy. What's that? 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he says, um, let's see here, down at the bottom. Oh, it's going to be published in another day, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I didn't know this was coming, but it would be another day or two. This charge I commit to you, verse 18, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, he's speaking first to Timothy, but then he starts speaking about some that don't have that faith and good conscience. Some, having rejected, just walked away from the faith, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. They're like a ship that was driven up on the shore and just completely busted apart, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blasphemy. He wouldn't say that if they were unsaved. 
he used the same term in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he said about the person that was uh, engaging in sexual immorality, hand him over to Satan, Satan for the destruction of the, Body. that his spirit may be Satan. saved on the day of Christ Jesus. He uses the exact same terminology, and here it is a corrective measure to get them to return to the faith. If they don't, they are the ones that will continue to suffer the shipwreck. Their ship will not sail out into the fair winds of life. But they will stand before the Lord. They will be judged according to his bema seat, not his great white throne, and they will lose rewards. And that's all that's going to happen to them. That is it. They are saved. We could go through 10 million verses about eternal salvation. Israel is the example to show us this. God never breaks his covenant promises. Once it's made, having... Uh, been predestined, you are called. Having been called, you are justified. And having been justified in his mind, you are glorified. It is done. D-U-N, done. Okay, so um, we'll go on. It says, um, some claim that salvation isn't eternal, but when looking at such things from God's perspective, it becomes apparent that it must be so. One action is no different than all of them as far as his eternal purposes are concerned. The foreknowledge, conforming, calling, justification, and glorification were purposed in his eternal mind, but they occur in the stream of time. The evidence for this is the last thought of the verse, those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could possibly deny the sequence of events has eternal significance up to this point, but Paul is absolutely clear that we are, past tense, glorified. However, this is something that hasn't happened yet in any saved believer who is right now reading Paul's words. Not one person here or any person on this planet or any person for the past 2,000 years that is now waiting in the grave has been glorified on any of them. That we're waiting for that moment to happen. It's a moment that, oh, I'm going to do a different type of uh, prophecy update this week. I'm not going to do my regular one. So I'll talk about exactly that. It's going to be fun. Um, Anyway, and it may be a little long, so bring your pillow. I don't know how long, but anyway... um, uh, I normally have an update which is six pages long. This is eight unless I can cut it down some more. But um, anyway, if it is, so be it. Um, but uh, it, it, it'll be something that will clarify what I think is a necessary clarification on the timing of the rapture. So anyway, um, it, there's no way that we could deny the sequence of events that Paul has put down. We are not glorified. We are right here, and we are waiting to be glorified No person has been glorified, and yet he says it is done. It applies to all who have believed. If you have believed, if you were predestined, if you were called, if you were justified, you are glorified. Same sequence of events as if, let's go back to Ephesians 2 really quickly, because all I did was just snub, snub um, Burke over there. But um, actually what I should have done is just read you the entire sequence so you can see it, because he does the same thing there, is Ephesians chapter 2, and it says here, I'm start at verse 1, and you, he made alive. He made you alive, okay, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Every person was born of a father. We already talked about this. You inherited the sin nature. The wages of sin is death. It's not speaking of physical death. Even though physical death is a result of our spiritual dead state, we are born spiritually dead, okay? We are dead in our sins and trespasses. But you, he made alive, okay? who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Totally in line with what John says, the reason that the Son of God was manifest, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil. Exactly what he says here. You were under the devil's influence. 
You are either in Christ or you are of the devil, and there is no other two options according to Scripture. That's it. Either your Lord is devil, even if you can deny it, you can say, I don't believe in the devil, it doesn't change anything. You can say, I don't believe in the rapture. Well, guess what? When the rapture happens, if you're a believer, you're going to go, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't make What you believe is irrelevant. What matters is what the word says. And the word says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the, the, uh, uh, the dictates or the wiles of the prince of the power of the air. Okay, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You're either in Christ, an overcomer, or you are a son of disobedience. Either saints or ain'ts. Saints or ain'ts. Very good. I like that. Verse 3, among whom also we all once, all, all of us conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. John 3, 16, everybody knows it. John 3, 18, most don't, right? Those who believe in the Son are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already, right? It just confirms what Jesus says. Right here, this confirms exactly what Jesus has already said. God came to save us. Saving implies you need to be saved. That's exactly right. You need to be saved. If you say, Jesus says, I'm here to save you, that means you're in a bad spot, and he wants to get you out of that. That is what salvation is. It is not going to heaven. It is salvation is, or going to heaven is a benefit of being saved. Salvation is not going to hell any longer, because all people are on that path. All human beings are on the path. Okay, so going on. We're all children of wrath, just as the others. Verse 4, but... God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that these folks completely blew it on. That is the baptism of the Spirit. It is a one-time thing. It happens only once. We don't mix the physical water baptism with the spiritual regeneration. They're both baptism, but one only pictures the other. It is a profession of faith in what Christ has done spiritual that's it okay so um he made us alive together rich in mercy because of this great love and we were dead in the trespasses um uh, made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved verse six and raised us up together exactly glorified right here same as what he says in romans eight thirty is what he's saying right here he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in christ jesus does anybody here have a physical ache or pain today? Oh, yeah. How many? All right. We're not sitting with Christ Jesus right now, except in God's mind. It, it is done. All right. I know my back hurts right now. I know that uh, we've got some brothers that have cancer in here right now. Right. We have physical problems. We have mental problems. We've got financial problems. We've got all the grief in the world thrown upon us day after day. I got to get up and go to work. I got to do this and I got to do that. Right. According to God, we are sitting in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus right now. Everything you are experiencing, which is a bummer, will be gone. And it is guaranteed. You cannot lose that, according to Paul. Romans 8.30 and uh, Ephesians 2.7. Okay? Or 2.6. 2.7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Forever and forever and forever. In the ages to come we will understand the grace that God has bestowed upon us. We were dead in our trespasses. He raised us up together to sit in the heavenly realms. We're not sitting there now. And what should happen? Every time that we sin, every time that we violate the law, he should 
kick us out. Oh, you're not saved anymore, just like the uh, Arminian uh, teachings, uh, Ar Jacob Arminius, the Wesleyans, and the, the, uh, the people that teach you can lose your salvation. That's what God should do, you know? You adopt somebody, and they, they're a screw-up, and you say, I don't want you around anymore, right? God doesn't do that. For the ages of ages, we will see the grace that was bestowed upon us even after our salvation, but it will never change. Think of Hymenaeus and Alexander. They shipwreck their faith, and for the ages of the ages of the ages, they will say, how great God is that he didn't give me what I deserved after shipwrecking my faith. He will stand there, both of them, in the presence of the Lord, and they will say, great is the grace of God. Okay, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not grace that saves you, it is not faith that saves you, it is the grace united with the faith. It is the entire process. That is what God has developed. It is the process which God has developed which saves us. His grace, our faith, the process is what God gave us. And how do we know that's correct? Because grace and faith are one gender, and then um, the gift is another. And it doesn't match if you say grace or faith. It is the process. The entire thing was developed in the mind of God. He gives us grace by our faith, and we are saved. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, oh, got to get my notes. Okay, so we have um, Ephesians 2. Isn't that funny? I went and I did that, and I told myself to read that anyway, so we just read it. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll read this paragraph again, and when we get to that, then I'll just skip over it. We could possibly deny the sequence of events. Okay, Paul's words. They are still in their fallen body, living in a fallen world, and from time to time, sinning. Okay, some people sinning a lot. Okay, and yet, according to this verse, we are already in heaven. And it ties in with, as I said, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, which I just read you, so I won't read it again. We are, according to this passage that I just read from Ephesians, seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The honor is already accomplished in God's mind, and we are positionally with Christ in heaven. And yet, we are actually still here on earth. Someday, According to the truth of eternal salvation, what does it say in um, Hebrews? It says Christ is the author of <coughs> dubious salvation. No, he says eternal salvation. He makes it explicit in the book of Hebrews. He is the author of eternal salvation. We don't need to worry about this doctrine. It's not like something, I don't care how badly you blow it, get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I love you, and I know I'm already saved, and I thank you for that salvation. Okay, that is what we need to do is we need to trust that his word is true and not worry about what people say. Well, you can't be saved. You've done something. Well, guess what? You're going to do it tomorrow, buddy. All right. Everybody is going to fall at some point. All right. And so we'll go on. And yet we are still actually here on earth. Someday, according to the doctrine of eternal salvation, we will actually be sitting in this glorious spot and life application. Salvation is eternal. Christ is in control and nothing can separate you from the love of God in him. Stand firmly and unwaveringly on the truth that you are saved if you are in Christ. Be at peace in his work, which got you there. He didn't hang on the cross to provide you with eternal insecurity. That's not why he died. He died so that you would have eternal security. How diminishing to the glory of what Christ did to say, I can lose my salvation, because it becomes works again. If you are saved by works, which is contrary to the doctrine of salvation, then Christ was insufficient for you. And that's what churches all over teach. You need to do this. you got to stop eating pork. you got to meet on a Saturday or something. Well, guess what? If you have to do that after being saved, 
then it still works. And it says that what he did is insufficient. He did not come to provide us eternal insecurity. He came to provide us eternal security. Faith is what does it. And he loves us enough to save us despite ourselves. Okay, Romans 8. Hey, um, Vicki, would you come here a second? I, I need your help. I want, want you to do something. Actually, I don't need your help at all. I just wanted you to look at the camera because this is Vicki from IHOP. You look up at the camera up there. We were watching you on TV last week, and I didn't know it was you when I was in California. You've never seen me She's our girl from IHOP. This is the sweetest lady in the world, and I've never met her daughter, so I wanted to meet her right now. Hello, Precious. How are you? Good. It's so nice. I've heard so many good things about you, and your mom is so proud of you. Did you know that? Yes. Okay, well, I'm glad you do. So it's nice to meet you finally. All right, you go sit down and enjoy the Bible study. She decided so, to come. We didn't ask her. says that, never do it. Yeah. <laughs> come here, I, I, you need my help. I need your help, yeah. All right, there you go. Well, that was, I needed her help. I needed to, to get... a bright spot to them. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm telling you what, she and one other girl that are at IHOP will come up and they don't care who's watching. They will pray with us. They'll pray in Jesus' name, and that is such a relief to have people like this still in the world, willing to yep. demonstrate their faith. Oh, my all goodness. It, what's that? Yeah let's, all yeah, let's all go to IHOP afterward. <laughs> I'll be in bed. You guys go. Um, <laughs> Romans 8.31, please. All right. Which dovetails right into your last comment. There you what go. then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Short comment on this verse, but it's a beautiful verse. In Romans 8.31, Paul takes what has been stated thus far concerning the work of Christ and how it relates to us, and he turns it into a series of six questions. Why would he do this? Because he's a great thinker, that's why. What is it about questions that refocus our attention? When you're presented with a question, do you evaluate it as a tool to get you to think on what has already been submitted? Are you ready for me to stop asking questions? Okay, we'll get on. Paul's first question encompasses the entire discourse of chapter 8. What then shall we say about these things? He's asking about everything he said so far in chapter 8. Okay, so we're going to go back and we're going to review all of chapter 8, and I'm going to go through all of the notes for the past two months, and then we'll go, okay, that's not true. Anyway, so review what has been stated, think on it, Resolve to align your thoughts about Christ with what you have read, okay? <laughs> I am free from the law of sin and death. Is this salvation eternal? Am I truly a son of God through adoption? Yes, I received the spirit of adoption. I was predestined and called, and I accepted the call. Now I stand justified and even glorified because of this. Because of all of that that has been stated, Paul asks this question, what then shall we say of these things? The answer is a resounding note of the victory found in Jesus Christ. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? There isn't enough ink in the entire world to type the number of exclamation points which should follow this thought. It is a truth that we can stand on, and when, and when the forces of sin and wickedness come against us, as I've said they would, and as you know they do, when our hearts are weighed down, we can meditate on this verse and others like it and receive strength to continue on. And I'm going to take you very quickly to Psalm 118. All right. Psalm 118, I'm going to take you to verse 6 first. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
And then in verse 10, all nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You stand firm in the Lord. One person is saying this, I will destroy the nations of the earth, and that is Christ. If he can do that, he is taking care of the problem for us. Deal done, okay? Life application. If you have received Jesus as Lord, everybody here done that? Anybody here not received Jesus? Because if you haven't, we should get that straightened out tonight. It's very simple, all right? All you need to do is call out and say, I understand I have sin in my life. I need to have my sin debt paid. I can't pay it on my own. God has given a perfect substitute to take away my sin debt. I trust that Jesus did that. I believe that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. You are, it's a done deal. You need to just simply let go of your pride and say, I'm going to stop trying to please God with my own actions, and I'm going to trust in what God has done through Christ. That is what God wants you to do, is to yield yourself to him, acknowledging him as Lord. Okay, so if you've received Jesus as Lord, God is in fact for you. As he is the owner of eternity and the possessor of your soul, then nothing else can truly harm you. Stand fast in this fact and be comforted in the power of God, which is now on your side. Okay, email after email, distress comes in every single day. Some are believers, some are not believers that want to know something, but the fact is that everything that happens that's distressing in this world has an end. All of it. It's going to be ended, and we are going to be in a really, really happy spot in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ, not so much, right? It's going to be a very bad eternity. But Christ has come to deliver us from all of this misery. So what's happening now? We can't get out of it. You know, we can't take ourselves off and say, well, I'm not going to have my cancer today. You have to live with it. But it will be done. It'll be over, okay? 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Obvious question, right? We didn't even need to come to this verse, and yet we did. It's so profound. It's so absolutely marvelous what Christ, God has done in Christ for us. It's wonderful. In verse 31, we were asked that if God is for us, who can be against us? In continuation of that same thought, Paul explains why he who did not spare his own son is obviously speaking of God the Father. It's not speaking of anybody else, okay? People have offered their sons on the idols of Molech and of all kinds of idols around the world. Go down to Mexico and they used to take virgins and cut out their hearts and hold them up for the people to see and say, this is our sacrifice. We're going to have a good, you know, uh, crop this year or whatever, That's not what this is speaking of. This is speaking of God himself stepping out of eternity in the second person of the Trinity, uniting with human flesh and coming to die for us. God the Father sending his son. Okay, he who did not spare a son. Fathership implies (laughs) sonship. However, this father-son relationship does not imply something which occurred in time. God created time and we are living in it. As I said, everything that we experience is for our benefit. It's not for God's. It's for our benefit. We cannot apply family concepts to the Godhead in a one-to-one comparison of that of humanity, okay? The humanity of Jesus is united to the deity of Jesus without intermingling or separation of any kind. Remember the uh, the triangle, the little circle down here, and if it's removed, you've got one heresy. If it's overlapping, you've got another heresy. The circle and the triangle touch They don't overlap. They don't separate at all. And this is forever. Christ is forever the God-man. That will never, never, never change. 
is the God-man. To say anything other than that is a word. It begins with H and ends with heresy. Yes, heresy. You got it. So, um, <laughs> he is the God-man. There are only a few heresies. I, I, I will give you a pre of what's coming on Sunday, okay? Oh boy. I, just a little bit, just so you know that this is not a heresy. Somebody sent me a link on the, the rapture guy here in Florida that Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the details on Sunday. I'll, I'll bring it up. It's not part of what I've written down, but I, I've got to make sure I bring it up. He sent me this link, and this guy says, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you are going to hell. Huh. Okay. Yeah, imagine that. Probably 1% of all Christians in the past 2,000 years even know what a rapture is, right? They have no idea. Most Christians never had a Bible in their entire life. Up until, what, 200 years ago, it was a very rare thing for a person to have his own Bible, right? All of a sudden, we have all these specialists that make up all of these stupid things. It's nothing. That is just bad doctrine. If you believe in this or this or this, bad doctrine. Bad doctrine doesn't keep you from being saved. It doesn't exclude you from being saved, right? Bad doctrine rewards and losses. The only thing that's going to keep somebody from being saved is a heresy. And a heretic can be a saved person. He can believe correctly, but what he teaches will keep the next guy from being saved, all right? People need to get their thoughts straight, and that is not a very clear thinker that put that out, and apparently he's got a very big following. I don't know who he is, but anyway, yeah, I got sent judge, that, and I was too. like, oh, can you he's imagine? A, what? He's a judge, too. Well, he told you. That. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got that, and I got a couple other things on the rapture. I thought, I just need that. I, I just need to give my thoughts on it, and then... He can, he can email me if he ever sees my video, and he can say, well, you're going to hell because you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay. Anyway, um, so here we go. Um, verse 31, where was I? Oh, yeah, the humanity of Jesus is united to the uh, deity of Jesus. No intermingling, no separation. Jesus is the son of man. He was born into the stream of humanity. But the divine son eternally exists within the Godhead, just as does the spirit. Okay, so if you don't believe in the Trinity, that is a heresy because the Bible clearly teaches that God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. Or actually, we should say that the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God, rather than putting it the other way around. But either way, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. Therefore, it is a heresy if you don't believe that. And there's a couple others. Um, the incarnation of Christ. He is fully man. And that is a heresy if you don't believe that, okay? The um, uh, virgin birth. If he wasn't virgin born, then he inherited Adam's sin, and we are still in our sins, and there is no hope for us. So the virgin birth, if you deny that, that is a heresy. Now, here's why I say that a heretic can be a saved person. When you come to Jesus Christ and you believe the gospel message, which is, um, you know, Jesus died for my sins and he came out of the grave, right? Everybody believes that. Somebody tells you that, Okay. Is the doctrine of the virgin birth at all included in that equation? No. Most people don't even know what it is, and most people for the past 2,000 years don't know what the virgin birth is. It's like the pre-tribulation rapture. Nobody knows. But if somebody comes to you and they teach you that a man was born that was born of a man and a woman, and he died and came back out of the grave, guess what? That person will never be saved. The person that believed it originally was saved because the doctrine was never introduced to him. He just believed that Christ died for his sins. But now he has got something funny in his head, 
it logically doesn't separate him from God because he's saved, but now he is teaching something that he said, well, I heard that he was born and obviously must have had a father, right? So he's a, he never heard all of the specifics, and now he's teaching something that will actually keep somebody from being saved because logically you're believing in a person that inherited sin, and that person cannot take away another person's sin. So you see how a heresy will affect the next person. It doesn't necessarily affect the person that is teaching it. He got saved through the right doctrine without ever knowing the virgin birth. So you've got the, the uh, incarnation of Christ. You've got the virgin birth. Um, you've got the deity of Christ. He's not just a man. He's God. Because if he's not, not God, then we're still in our sins as well. You have to have the God-man, right? You've got the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ. Have to have that. If he didn't, if he's not all-sufficient for our sins then our sins are still out there and we can't take care of them ourselves. So the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ is a necessary one. You've got the resurrection of Christ. If you don't have a resurrection, that means he's still dead. Still dead. And why is he still dead? Because he had sin. sin, right? So the resurrection is a necessary equation in there. And then you could throw in logically the return of Jesus Christ, that if he's not returning, then he's not the person that... Uh, you, so you could throw in the, the uh, return of Christ as a necessary qualification. Some people will debate that, others won't. But it's very explicit that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. That's right. So anyway, so um, let's go on. Um, where was that? Uh, review what's been... Oh, I'm 832. Is, are we in 832? Yes, we are. Yes, okay. So where was I now? The, oh, yeah. The Divine Son eternally exists within the Godhead, just as does the Spirit. God the Father did not spare his own Son, Jesus, but delivered him up for us all. You know, one thing that kind of bothers me is a lot of people out there, when they, they, they're on their uh, Facebook page or when they send an email, they're always acknowledging Yehovah or yod heh vav right, the, the divine name. And they're like, praise uh, Yehovah for his goodness to us. What does it say about the name of Jesus? It is the name uh, above every other name, right, or above all names, right? Okay, that is the name that we use. I don't care if you say Yeshua, which is his Hebrew name, or if you say Jesus, which is our translation of it, or you can say Yesu, which they say over in Asia, as long as you have the name Jesus in your own language or the original Yeshua, you are doing what God expects you to do, is to exalt the name of Jesus. Why? Because Yehovah or yod heh vav or Yahweh or however you pronounce it from the Old Testament, because they don't know the actual pronunciation of it, whatever name you use from the Old Testament, that is Jesus. Right? He became incarnate and he is the divine Lord of the Old Testament. So if you're going back and you're using the Old Testament name, there's a disconnect in your theology because we're supposed to be proclaiming the name of Jesus, right? It's all the way through the New Testament. They never mention Yahweh in the New Testament or Yehovah, or however you want to pronounce it. Never. It is always Jesus. Even Jesus called himself Jesus Christ when he gave his prayer. So you need to make sure that when you're using the name of Jehovah, if you're doing it, you're using it in the context of the Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament or when you're speaking about the fulfillment of that, you speak about the name of Jesus. Okay. It sounds cool to say, I'm going to use this Old Testament name. I'm more holy than you or whatever. It is not good theology. It's not good theology. The New Testament asks us to exalt the son. The son is Jesus. You had a question. I was just going to say, you know, I noticed that 
as I read through my Bible that there was a progression in what how they referred to even God. Sure. They didn't know him. They didn't know anything about him. They didn't have in the beginning. They didn't even have a law or anything. And the word um, Yahweh or whatever that was like the creator, the agricultural. I mean, and actually, it, it has some bad associations too because people not the not it. the name Jehovah. That never did. That was always his divine name. I am who I am. That's not a name that was used by anybody else. Okay. The term Elohim, God, simply means, if you want to think of what the term God is in the Old Testament, because the word Elohim is ascribed to people, it's ascribed to um, false gods, all the way through the Bible, you're going to see the word Elohim. That's what you're thinking of. The term Elohim, or Shaddai, Shaddai comes from maybe another uh, uh, the Akkadian language, they believe, or maybe somewhere else. But anyway, that's the all-powerful. And they other... change the word in the Holman Bible, they're using Yahweh a lot. Right. Well, that's fine just, because th th that's fine. If it's Old Testament and they're just simply translating instead of saying the Lord, L-O-R-D, and they put his divine name, who cares? Because that's what it is. Now, we don't know the true name, Yahweh or Jehovah, whatever. So they're just going with Yahweh because that's become you know, popular in the past 150 or so years. But that's fine. If they want to translate the Lord, that's actually what it says, yod heh vav heh. What it would be better would be to just simply, instead of saying the Lord, if you were to say yod heh vav heh. And that way, because we don't know the correct pronunciation of it, just put that. But if they don't do that, they might as well say the Lord. And there's a reason why they use the term the Lord. I've gone through this before. It's because in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lord. Right, And so they're saying the same being in the Old Testament is the one in the New Testament. Okay, But we don't want to make the mistake that this name here was ever used by anybody except God in relation to the covenant people. Okay, He was the creator back in Genesis 1, the Lord, Okay, all the way through. This is not something that is abused. If you're thinking of the term Elohim, the best way to get the idea of God, of the Old Testament, Elohim, that's the word that's translated, the very first sentence of the Bible, Bereshit bara Elohim, et. Okay, Elohim is God. And other cultures use that word, and as I said, people ascribe it to other things. If you think of the idea of over there, that's what, uh, what Elohim would be, over there. Okay, I am here, God is over there, Elohim. Or if uh, there is somebody that's superior to me, he's a judge, he is over there, he is in the place of judgment, you would say Elohim. Okay, now that's not all the way through the Bible, but there are times where judges are called Elohim. All right? Um, but you will notice if you go through the Bible, you don't attend here, so shame on you, but if you went through the Bible verse by verse, I always highlight when it says Ha Elohim, the God. And unfortunately, translations never put that article in there, and they should. Yeah, translators have not done a good job with the Old Testament in many cases. When you drop off that article, the, when it says it, and it says it quite a few times in the Old Testament, that is there for a reason. It is no other than the one true God, Ha Elohim, okay? And it is there very specifically. So anyway, we won't get into that, but my point is about the name of Jesus is that we are to use his name. We're not to defer back to the Old Testament because that obscures the glory of what God has done in entering humanity. The Old Testament Lord is not sitting up there dwelling over the circle of the globe right now saying, I'm going to do something someday. He has done it. He has come. We need to exalt that name because that is what God wants us to do. It's revealed right there in the New Testament like a billion times. Go ahead. Acts 4. Yes. Peter says. Oh, absolutely. 
in verse 10, yep. by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, in 12, there is salvation in... No None other. other. No, no That's right. Else. The Old Testament name no of name under heaven, heaven by which man must be saved. saved. The Old Testament name right here, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever you want to say, does not save anybody. He had to come in human flesh in order for that salvation to be worked out. He is the Savior. I, the Lord your God, am your Savior, and I, my glory I will not give to another and all that. But it did not happen until he entered the stream of humanity in the person of Jesus. So, yes, he is the Savior, but he didn't save anybody until Jesus, Yeshua. Okay, once Yeshua came, which, by the way, means salvation, Right? So when he's in the New Testament and he says um, uh, he's in the, the house and he goes to Zacchaeus's house and he says, look, Lord, I give all my possessions and blah, 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 and I'm going to repay everybody that I've done wrong to. What did Jesus say? Salvation. Salvation has come to this house. He's making a pun. I am here. Yeshua is here. I've come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Go through there and when he uses the name, his own name, or he says the word salvation, he's making a pun on his name for us to understand. Okay, that's what's important is we need to make sure we use the name of Jesus. When you pray, use the name of Jesus at the end of it in Jesus' name. Why? Because there is one way to get your well, one mediator between. Yeah, but you're right. I was looking for the word though. There's one way to get your prayers there. He is the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, not Jehovah. Okay. It is the man Christ Jesus. So I didn't mean to defer from there, but when something comes into my head, <laughs> it is important. It's very important because when you pray to God, guess what? There are 7 billion people or 8 billion almost now on this planet, and they're all praying to God. They're all praying to God, but their prayers aren't heard. There's only one way that your prayers are going to be heard, and that is through Jesus. The Old Testament symbolism of Leviticus showed us that very clearly. I am so happy I'm doing this one Timothy book study right now. It is marvelous. How, how rich it is. Every single day when I type a new devotional, I am so thankful for doing this book. I, I just, I've got a, and I've done it before, but this time I've got a completely new appreciation for the book of Timothy. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, um, so um, we'll go back a little bit. The fault which occurred in the stream of time. Let me go back one more sentence. God the Father did not spare his own son, Jesus. That's where I got the thought in my head, but delivered him up on the cross for us all. The fault which occurred in the stream of time, meaning back at Adam when he fell, demanded that action be taken to correct the fault. This is the incarnation. It is the uniting of God and man in the person of Jesus. He's the Savior, but he didn't save until he united with human flesh. Does everybody understand that now? When he says, I am the Lord your God, I am your Savior, and there is no other, that is true. But it is only true insofar as the moment that he entered the stream of humanity, fulfilled the law which he gave to Israel, died in fulfillment of the law, and then came out of the grave proving that he died in fulfillment of the law. It is the name of Jesus that we are to use. And all of these other things that people use, they post them on their Facebook pages and all that, is it is not good handling of Scripture. And to me, it's diminishing of what Christ did. He came. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is Yeshua salvation okay the father gave the son so he's just that's right and justifier just and justifier he is our all in all that's absolutely right okay so this is the one whom god did not spare meaning jesus he delivered him up for us all this thought can be taken in one of several ways 
Okay, he delivered him up for us all. No, this list that I'm going to give you is not all-inclusive. There's one way possible. Jesus was delivered up for all the elect only. That's called limited atonement. That's Calvinism. Christ died for certain people on this planet. They are the elect, and he did not die for anybody else. That's what Calvinism teaches. Uh, we went through that last week. We've gone through it several times in the past. It's Calvinism, tulip, T-U-L-I-P. That's this one right here, limited atonement, all right? Total depravity, um, I can't remember, L. Uh, anyway, the what? Yeah, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Each one of them is wrong in its own way to a certain extent. The middle one right there, limited atonement. He died for certain people. He either passed over or willfully condemns all others, okay? Incorrect. Two, Jesus was delivered up for all, meaning everyone, and everyone is saved. No. What is that? That's called universal universal salvation. That's right. Jesus Christ died for everybody. Everybody is saved. It's wrong. Okay? It's very wrong. Even Jesus says in his own word in Revelation that he's going to be the judge and he's going to be casting some people where they're not saved, right? Okay? So, that is another possibility and that's what if you want to that doctrine where everybody is saved, go over to the Universal Church. It's right over there on Proctor Road and go there one time. He'll tell you that everybody is saved, and then don't bother going again. Because if everybody is saved, you're wasting your time. Just do whatever you want. Why waste your time giving them your money and going to church, listening to their boring sermons, right? If everybody's saved, it's the most pointless thing in the world to go to church. You might as well just party it up, because this is the one chance you get, and after that, you're going to be floating on a cloud, right? Okay? Three, Jesus was delivered up for all, meaning everybody, unlimited We'll change the L here to a U. Unlimited salvation with a P. Potential, okay? Potentially. So everybody is potentially saved. Every person that's walking around on this planet right now can be saved. And Christ Jesus died for all of them. But not everyone will receive Jesus Christ. And so, go ahead. Savior of all men. Especially, of those, Especially of those who believe. That's right. He's the Savior of all men. Potentially, those who believe will be saved. That is called limited atonement actual. You've got unlimited atonement, potentially limited atonement actually. Okay? If somebody doesn't call on Jesus, they are not saved. End of story. Okay? There are other views on that, but those are the three prevalent views. They can't all be correct. Not all of them are. One of them is unlimited potential. Potentially limited, actually, yes. In our creation, in our free will. Right. But God created us all as we're all predestined for salvation, but then it is. No, no we're not all predestined will. for salvation. No. And the reason why is because God knows the choice we will make. Those he knew would choose, it does not. People will say, well, if he knows the choice you're going to make, then it's not free will. That's absolutely incorrect. I, you know, I know what my son is going to do when I leave something out that he's not supposed to eat, and there he goes and eats it. It doesn't change the fact that he still had to make the choice to do it. So free will is not negated by God's advanced knowledge. He knows who he is going to save. We are predestined to be uh, according to the image of his son, but only because he knew the choice we would make. But he created everyone for the eternal new heaven and earth. If they call on Jesus. Right. Right. So, but he created us for that purpose. That's right. He created us. What was hell created for? The devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. 
doesn't say anything about man. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. They were fully actuated potential. They have no choice in their redemption. They are going to hell. Hell is a byproduct of rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the, we're going to hell because we're condemned already, but we have the choice, okay? We're all going there anyway because man fell, but we are progressively actuating potential. We have the potential to choose Jesus until the day we die. Once we die, that potential is done. We no longer have the choice. So God created man, man fell, God gave a plan in order to redeem us from that. Anybody who is included in that plan by free will will be saved. Everybody else will not be saved. God knows in advance what it will do. It does not change our free will. We still, like I said, my son or daughter, I know what they're going to do. It doesn't change the fact that they still have to make the choice. I can't beat them for doing what they did until after they do it. And then I get out the belt and I give it to them. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I ever gave them a belt. I'm just saying. But you know what I'm saying? We know something doesn't change the fact that it has to happen first. You know, that's like um, uh, that movie, Tom Cruise, um, uh, come on, where um, – you know, the movie where... Ferris Bueller's No, Day no, no. Tom Cruise, the one where... It, Minority Report. Oh they God. were arresting people before yes. they committed yes. the crime. Yes. Doesn't work that way. God has to let us go through the crime before he makes the judgment. Adam fell and then God punished, right? And the same is true with us. We're not saved until we make the decision. Minority Report. Go watch it. You'll understand all the theology you need. I got to go on. Matthew um, twenty five forty one is where that... Devil and his angels. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Twenty-five, forty-one. Thank you. Okay, so we've got the three choices. We know that the last one, this one is absolutely crazy. The second one is even crazier, right? And then we come to the one that makes sense. Christ died for everybody. He wants, he, he's long-suffering, hoping, or I won't, I don't want to misquote it, but uh, desiring that none perish, but all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I know I misquoted that, but anyway, it tells you that God sent his son to die for everybody, but only those who call on him will be saved. Okay, based on the entire scope and premise of the Bible, the nature of God, and the obvious and yet often denied truth of free will, the third option which I read you is correct. God delivered Christ up for all people. To those who have received this offering, how, Paul says, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The term with him, meaning Jesus, is meant to show that even though Christ was delivered up for us, he prevailed over the ordeal and is heir to all things. All authority has been granted to me, right? Nothing is excluded there. He has all authority, everything, all right? God is revealing himself through the second member of the Trinity. Every single thing belongs to him, all authority. We go through him. We'll never see God the Father. People email me about that from time to time, and I have to explain to them. They say, a very good question, right? I asked the exact same thing when I was up at Southern Evangelical. Up in, uh, I said, how could it be that Jesus was standing there and he heard a voice from heaven? This is my son, right? Well, how can that be? God is outside of time. That means that that voice had to have been ordained when? Before the foundation of the world, because he is outside of time. How that works, I'm not smart enough to understand, but that is correct. All right, when we see when, what's his name, Stefan, looked up and he said, I see Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. What was he seeing? He was seeing Jesus. The right hand doesn't mean that he sees God the Father and Jesus is standing next to him. It means that it is the power of authority, the position of power of authority. The right hand is simply positional. 
doesn't mean that he says, oh, here's God, and I see his right hand, and Jesus is standing there. It's saying that he is in the position of authority. We will never see God the Father, ever. Jesus will ceaselessly and endlessly reveal God the Father to us. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the one that reveals him to you, okay? So uh, we got just another minute, and we're done. Um, delivered us up. Um, the term with him uh, is meant to show that even though Christ was delivered up for us, he prevailed over the ordeal and is heir to all things. And because he is heir to all things and God delivered him up for us, then it is evident that we also are given all things. We are in Christ. He's been given all things. They belong to us. We are, in, we are joint inheritors with Christ. This takes us back to verse 17, oh, which I just said, which noted that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It is all done. Everything belongs to us as much as it belongs to the Son. That is how much God loves us, by simple faith in what he did. Okay? Uh, we were crucified with Christ, meaning that when he went to the cross, we likewise were there with him. Our sin nature was nailed to it. Because of this, we are the recipients of what the Son receives, given freely by God to us because of the work of another Tell me that's not amazing. Tell me that is not a bargain of bargains. And people would fritter that away. You know, even saved believers, they never want to know more about the one that saved them. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. I can't, you know, 36 years of my life, I frittered away. And when I found out that Christ did this for me, that is all that I've wanted to do since then is to read this book, to know it more and to know it more, and then to start telling people about it and being able to get this word out to people, right? That is all I can think. I don't understand people that don't do that, but everybody's an individual. We're all on our own plane. We're all going to stand before him and we will receive our rewards and our losses for deeds done well in the body, okay? You've got your choices to make. Life application. Time and again, we can see that Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful place to go when life has us down. Though we lose all in this life, so much more glory awaits us. Yes, things may be tough, but God will bring us through to riches unimaginable. Wonderful stuff. All right, let's go ahead and close up here and, and get back home and have some dinner. Heavenly Father, how very good it is to be in your presence. How wonderful it is to share in the glory that you have sent in the person of Jesus and to know that someday we will share in it in the most intimate and unique way that could possibly be imagined. We can't even comprehend what is coming, but it certainly will be wonderful. And Lord, for those who are suffering with their trials and their difficulties, I would pray that they would take to heart the lesson of Romans chapter 8, and they would say that I know this is terrible, but what's coming is so much better. I'm just going to fix my eyes on that and, and let this world pass away. We, there's nothing we need here, Lord. Australia's made the wrong decision in the past couple days. They've decided on a path which is unholy and how distressing that is for them as a nation. And so many other nations have done the same thing. And we would pray that uh, all of the believers would get closer to you because of this and that would wean themselves off of this world and just hunger and thirst for you alone. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we give you all the glory you're due. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What did they do? Uh, they voted homosexual rights. And uh, it's still got to be approved by the, the parliament, but that is going to happen. It, it is a done deal. So let me back this baby up, and we'll say goodbye to these folks and uh, break. The whole world has just gone crazy.
Okay, five, four, three, two, one. There we are. Everybody have a wonderful night. We love you so much. Take good care of yourselves. Worldwide. It's just worldwide. I think the Flintstones had a gay old time. <laughs> a gay old time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I appreciate it. I tell you, this is wonderful. Yeah, you just get a couple people in town. I'm so happy Vicky's here.